Well, please turn your Bibles to Galatians 4. As you turn there, I just want to echo a couple things that uh, Phil mentioned earlier. First, of course, just want to uh, thank Debbie Jo for her ministry to our, our children and would encourage you to do so as well. And as uh, Phil mentioned, uh, she's, she's not here today. She did not want to be uh, uh, taken up on stage and, and publicly recognized. As you know, Debbie Jo, she does not enjoy uh, the spotlight like that. But I just want to say how grateful I am uh, for her ministry, how grateful we are for her ministry personally thinking about her coming and uh, beginning this ministry in the spring of 2008 when we were just uh, beginning to, to kind of think through things to launch as a church and uh, each of my children have been a part of her ministry and my kids I, I think that their love for the church is a uh, is, is attributable in a large part not just to, uh, to God's grace of course but also to uh, people in the church uh, caring for them, and just think of that Sunday school ministry and children's church, and how much my children were loved by by people in the church and Debbie Joe's faithfulness in that ministry. So, uh, as as Phil mentioned, there's an opportunity to leave cards for her at the welcome center. I think there are some there's some cards there too that you can jot a little note down thanking her uh, for her ministry and encourage you to do so. Just so grateful for her and and uh, grateful for the. The women who will be uh, filling in for her, taking her spot. It took four. You know, there's four people who are going to be uh, uh, doing the work that she did. So be praying, of course, also for uh, Martha and Beth as they work in the children's uh, Sunday school class. And then also for Kim and Katie as they're going to be working with the, the children's church. So we believe that God has really blessed our church with children and as we're faithful to that, that ministry, God will uh, allow us to see some neat fruit harvest in the lives of, of the young people. So continue to pray for that. And then also, as, as Phil mentioned, our pledge cards are uh, due today. Kind of, this, this is the day we're kind of finishing up the building campaign. And we're seeing how God providentially would direct us. And so uh, hearing good things, we'll hopefully have some good things to turn in uh, and report within the next week or so. But um, just very grateful for how it looks like people are sacrificially being involved in this ministry. It takes the, the family working together in this. And so we're excited about where God would uh, direct us. And even if uh, you're in a position where you say, you know, I, I, just where God has me, I can't be a part of this. But you're one of our, our regular uh, givers. We'd encourage you just to, to say that and in, in turn in a pledge. Say, hey, I, I'm not going to be able to be a part of this. And uh, been we'll be praying for it or, or involved in other ways, but it's it's helpful to know uh, kind of where we are as 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 a group. Now again, uh, the elders aren't looking at these cards. This is uh, something that just uh, Diane is is looking at, and the financial secretary is looking at, at gifts when they come in. But this is not something that we're not looking at names and things like that. But this kind of help us to know big picture where we are as a church. And again, excited about that, seeing how God might continue to direct our church through his uh, gracious providence as, as he wills. Galatians 4, we're here in Galatians 4, and in this part of this epistle where Paul has talked about this, this true gospel, the, the freedom that we find in the true gospel, and he talks about the source of the true gospel in the first two chapters, and then the, the content of the true gospel in the, the, the chapters 3 and 4, and now he's beginning to turn his attention more to this idea of freedom, and that's going to continue to develop in chapter 4 and on into chapter 5, and 
exciting to see how this theme of freedom continues to develop in the book of Galatians. And we're going to start in verse 21, and this morning we're going to look at kind of half this passage, and then next week, if the Lord allows, we'll look at the next half as we finish up chapter 4. But we're going to read the whole thing, the whole last part of chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And so if you're able to this morning, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Paul writes this, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he, was, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Father, we do ask for your encouragement today. We, we pray that as we look at this text, that we would understand and experience the freedom that we have in your Son, Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen. 1979, uh, Bob Dylan released a song entitled, Gotta Serve Somebody. And it, it began with these lines. You may be an ambassador to England or to France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you've got to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you've got to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And, of course, there's some, some truth in that song. I mean, not as much truth as the song Mike taught us earlier about Save My Soul, but there's still some truth in there, right? There's still, still some truth. The idea that no matter where you are in the social status, the social strata of life, no matter what your role is, you don't have complete autonomy. You're not free from any constraints whatsoever. All of us have to serve somebody. That's Dylan's point, and, and he's correct. Sometimes when we think of freedom, we're kind of like the, the teenager who thinks about and longs for the day when they're no longer under mom and dad's roof. And, they, and all of us have felt that before, right? You, you think, okay, freedom, I'm going to be free and I'm going to step out in the world and I'm going to be able to what? Do whatever I want. And then you, you step out and you go into the world and you go, oh, I really can't do whatever I want. There are a lot of constraints still on me. Sometimes we think of freedom in that sense. We think, okay, I'm going to be free to be completely autonomous, but as Dylan recognizes, as all of us recognize, 
That's, that's not how the world works. And freedom in Scripture, freedom doesn't mean complete autonomy. It doesn't mean complete ability to just kind of do whatever you want. Freedom, as we see it described in Scripture, means the, the removal of restraints. It means to be released from bondage. There was something that enslaved us. There was something that we were restrained by. And now that, that thing that restrained us or those things that restrained us that, that, that held us in bondage, now those things are no longer there. We're, we're free from those. We're free in that sense. So, for example, let me just read a couple of Scripture passages that, that describe this. We see as we look at Scripture, when we, come, when we are believers, when we are saved by God's grace and place our faith in his son Jesus, we become free. And, and here's how freedom is described in Scripture. We're, we're free, for example, from the power of, of sin, the power of the flesh, these, these internal things within us. Paul says in Romans 6, If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. Titus 2.14 says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's, there's freedom in that sense as well. There's also freedom from, from external forces, the the world in this age, Galatians 1.4, remember it says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Coming to chapter 4, and it says that we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, verses 8 and 9. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, but now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. We're free from, from the power of sin, the bondage of sin. We're free from Satan. We're free from external forces in the world. We're, we're free from this age and the evils within it. We're, we're free in the sense that we're no longer enslaved. We're no longer in bondage to things that we were before. John Piper gives a, a really interesting definition of freedom as we think about it biblically. Listen to what he says. He says, Full freedom is what you have when, you, when no lack of opportunity, no lack of ability, and no lack of desire prevents you from doing what will make you happiest in a thousand years. You see what he's saying there? Freedom means that there's no obstacle in terms of opportunity. There's no obstacle in terms of ability. There's no obstacle in terms of desire that will prevent you from pursuing that which brings you the greatest amount of joy. That's what freedom is. When God in his grace gives us the opportunity, the ability, and the desire to pursue that which would bring us joy for the present and for the age to come. Imagine it this way. Imagine that I told you that there was a sunken treasure in the Atlantic Ocean. 
and I told you exactly where this treasure chest was. Okay, here's where the shipwreck is, and here's where the, the pirate's chest is, and here's the exact coordinates at, at which this, this treasure chest is, is, is settled there at the bottom of the ocean. W- would you be free to acquire that treasure? Not necessarily, right? I mean, one, you have the opportunity is it legally your, within your grasp to do so? You're, you're here in central Illinois. Do you have the opportunity to, to, to get to that place and, and acquire that treasure? Maybe not. In, in that sense, you're not free to get the treasure. But let's say that I, I took you out to the, place, the very place in the ocean where this treasure was. And I said, okay, here we are on our little boat above the treasure. You can, you can go get it. Now, would you be free to get the treasure at that point? Well, no, most likely. Because now what are you lacking? You're lacking the ability. You don't have the equipment. You don't have the the know-how of how to go down into the bottom of the ocean and acquire the treasure. You're not free in that sense. But now let's say that you've been trained. You have the, the, the equipment necessary. You know exactly how to get at the treasure. and You know how to bring it back up to the surface. Now you have the opportunity because you're there. You have the ability to, that you're, because you're there. But now let's say that we find out at the last minute you are terrified of going underneath the water like that. The idea of being constrained and overwhelmed by all of that, that the weight of the ocean, that just fills you with terror. And you say, I am, I am not sticking a toe in that, much less immersing myself to the, go down to the bottom of the depths of the ocean, are you free now? Well, no, because what's lacking? Desire. What Piper is saying is, look, freedom, freedom in the, in the scriptural sense, whenever God describes uh, freedom in scripture, he's saying, look, what's been removed is, is, is all the obstacles to pursuing that which is your greatest treasure. And, and what is our greatest treasure? Well, it's God himself. And so whenever we have freedom, we now have the opportunity to acquire God. We have the ability by God's grace to receive God. We have the desire because he's changed our hearts to pursue that which is going to bring us pleasure and joy today and tomorrow and for a thousand years and for eternity. That's what freedom is in Scripture. We're spending some some time kind of working through this because we're talking about freedom and enslavement this week and next. We're going to kind of continue that theme as we go through Galatians. And so it's important for us to understand what do we mean when we we say there's freedom or we're enslaved as we're going through this, this passage. Our treasure is God himself, and for, tr- for, for true freedom to exist, a person needs to understand that God is my treasure, and they, a person needs for God to give them the opportunity, the ability, the desire to pursue him as their greatest joy. And this week, we're looking at a people who have forgotten what their treasure is, who their treasure is, and how that treasure can be obtained. Paul's writing to the Galatians, and this is a people who have forgotten that God is their greatest treasure, and they have forgotten that the treasure of God can only be received by God's grace as we pursue him through faith. And now they're trying to pursue joy on the basis of their own works. Remember what's happened? Some people have come into the region, and they've been 
you know, the Galatians had received the gospel. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They believed that there was no works they could do in order to receive God's forgiveness. And so they recognized that Jesus Christ is their Savior, and they placed their faith in him alone. And then some Judaizers, some opponents of Paul, had come in. They said, look, if you really want to do this Christian thing right, you need to become Jewish. And now the Galatians have gotten their thinking all messed up. And so instead of saying, okay, here's God, and he's, he's God himself, and the only way that I can obtain God is by his grace, and I'm going to pursue him by faith, trusting in him that he is going to give me himself, they've stopped doing that, or they're tempted to stop doing that, and now they think, okay, I, I, need, to, I need to do these things. I need to, I need to be, be circumcised. I need to begin to follow the law. I need to observe Jewish the Jewish calendar and holidays, and I need to begin to go through this, these motions of work and obedience, and, and then perhaps I'll obtain the treasure of joy. And Paul's saying, you guys have got it all messed up. You think that you're free, but as you pursue the treasure through works, what's happened? You've become enslaved. And the same is true for you and me. We get mixed up in our thinking. We forget that God is our treasure. And as we replace the treasure of God with other things that we try to pursue in our own efforts and our own strength apart from God's grace, we become enslaved as well. So for example, let's say that we're in a marriage relationship and the marriage relationship isn't going the way that we would desire that marriage relationship to go. And we say, well, I I want God to give me the blessing of a good marriage. And I begin to make a good marriage my ultimate prize. Now, is a good marriage a good thing? Absolutely, right? It can be a very God-glorifying thing. But I've, I've forgotten that my treasure is God himself, and I've replaced the treasure of God himself with this good marriage. And then I begin to say, okay, what are the things I can do so that God will bless my marriage. Maybe if I pray more, maybe if I fast more, maybe if I, on my own strength, maybe if I do these things, God will give me what I desire, which is this, this marriage relationship. And I've, I've, been ta- I've, I've talked with people in the past where a husband, for example, will say, look, Daniel, I want a good marriage, and so I'm, I'm doing these things, and I, I know I need to, to do a better job helping around the house. I need to pray more. I need to do, th- and I'm doing these things. I'm, I'm doing all these things, Daniel, but God isn't giving me the marriage that I want. He's not changing my wife the way that I desire her to change. And what has happened to that man? He's become enslaved because he's believing that through his own works and efforts, he can experience joy. And he's frustrated when he doesn't receive the joy of God in the way that he desires to experience that joy. We said, you know, isn't it true that as we obey God that we can see some fruits of blessing in our life? Yes, yes, that's next week. Hold on, we'll get there. But here's what I want you to see. As, here's the main idea, in fact, the main thing I want us to grasp this morning. Pursuing joy through human effort will not lead to freedom, but to slavery. If I begin to pursue my joy through human effort, I will find myself enslaved because pursuing joy through human effort does not lead to freedom. It leads to slavery. So maybe you're a young person at school and you're saying, okay, I desire Christian friends. Now that is a wonderful thing for you to desire. But what happens, sometimes we replace that that good thing we desire 
we replace God with that good thing. We say, okay, this is now my treasure. And so we say, oh, if, I, if I just go to youth group enough, and if I just uh, ha- you know, have the right attitude when I'm with my friends, and if I just pray in the right way, and if I just read my Bible, if I just do these things, then I'll receive the blessing that I desire. God will bless me in the way that I desire to be blessed. And what's happened? As you've pursued God's blessing through your works, you've enslaved yourself because you're believing by your own works and efforts you can receive the blessing that you desire. True joy is only found as we pursue God himself. And God himself cannot be obtained on the basis of our works or our efforts. God can only give us himself by his grace and we can only receive him through faith. Pursuing joy through human effort will not lead to freedom but to slavery. So what we're going to do is we're going to look, first of all, verses 21 and the first part of 24, and we're going to look at the story. And as we look at the story of Hagar and, and Sarah, we're going to see two different ways of pursuing God's joy, two ways of pursuing God's blessing. And then we're going to spend some time looking at the first way in, in more detail as we look at the story of Hagar. So let's look first of all here at two ways of pursuing God's blessing. Number one here, two ways of pursuing God's blessing. And really that's verse, it says verse one there, that's my typo, apologize for that. We're looking at verse 21, okay? Verse 21, Paul, Paul writes this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And so he's, he's asking this question. Hey, don't, don't you know those of you who are, have this idea that we're going to, to be obedient to the law and we're going to pursue God's blessing through the law, have, have you actually read it? Do, do you know what it says? Paul's going to, in this very brilliant strategy, he's going to use the law to show them the fruitlessness of using the law to achieve God's blessing. So say, okay, you want to look at the look at the law. Let's, let's look at the law and see what the law says about the law, and see about how God's blessing is pursued. The law itself will show you how foolish this this plan that you have is. When I was in college, I, I worked at a, a Christian bookstore, and we had this. I think I've talked about this before. We had this am, amazing. Uh, back wall. It was it was just a very long wall with with uh, shelves and shelves of every Bible version that you could imagine. It was just this this beautiful thing, and every every edition of every version that was on the market at the moment. It was just this. I love to just kind of go back there and smell the Bibles. Uh, beautiful. Anyway tears, right? Um, but there was one guy who would come into the bookstore sometimes, and he was, uh, he was, he was uh, very, uh, very concerned about all these other versions of the Bible. And he, he, would, he would talk to our customers and say, look, the, the King James Bible is the only Bible that a, a Christian should read. The, all other versions of the Bible aren't truly God's Word. This is the only version that is God's Word. And, uh, you know, what, what's interesting is if you opened up a King James Bible and you read the preface to the King James Bible, you, you know what it says. It says, okay, this is, this, this is one version of the Bible. There are other 
versions of God's word. They, they call other versions of the Bible God's word. And they said, we know that not everything we've done here is perfect. We have some footnotes and kind of read some of our alternate understandings. And we are sure that other people are going to come along and improve on our work. In other words, if, if you take a person who says the King James Bible is God's only word, and you take them to what they think is God's only word, and it says this isn't God's only word, what does that show you? shows you that the logic doesn't work. And, and that's what Paul is doing here. Look, you say that the law is the way you'd be obedient to the law, and that's how you'll receive God's blessing. Well, let me tell you what the law itself says. And it says this isn't the way to receive God's blessing, by obedience to the law. So here's the story. Here's the story. And again, the Galatians, maybe the, the gospel would seem too easy. Maybe the law was attractive because they could say, okay, I can point to my works I can take some pride in this. They want to be connected to the blessing of Abraham. They thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do some work and get connected, but here's the story. It begins in verse 22. Paul, Paul writes, It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And so he's, he's hearkening back here to the story of Abraham that we find in Genesis. And if you want to just turn back in your Bibles to Genesis you can turn back to, we'll start in Genesis 16, and we'll look at a couple of, of paragraphs from different sections here in Genesis and see the story that Paul is referring to. Remember as you come to Genesis 16 that God has made a promise to Abram. He has promised Abraham that he would give him a descendant, and he's promised that there would be a covenant and that God would bless him, that he'd create a nation out of him, and so that's that's what Abram is, is waiting on, right? And you come into chapter 16, and remember, God has made this promise, and the, the promise hasn't yet been fulfilled. It says in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And so Sarai comes up with this plan. Okay, God hasn't done what he said he's going to do yet through me, but we know that there's this, this blessing, and both of them desire this blessing. And so, so she says, here's the plan. This is verse 2. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from, having, from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Okay. Now, um, you don't have to be the world's uh, greatest marriage expert to realize that this plan uh, has some flaws to it. This, this may not go all that well. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. It's, it's a bad plan, even if it works, right? So Abram, it says, though, listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived, it says, 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, which seems like a very unfair verse, right? She says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now, there are so many things wrong with this, right? So many things wrong with just this paragraph. So many just... Red flags going off all over the place. This is not a good situation. Now, what does this represent? This represents way number one of pursuing God's blessing. 
God has told you about this good thing and you desire to receive this good thing instead of, so instead of pursuing it by faith, believing that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, you begin to pursue that blessing on your own works, often using methods that God would find repugnant. And so this is way number one. This is the, the, slave of the, the, the son of the slave woman. This is the one that's born according to the flesh. This is the, the son that's born through normal means, through human efforts, and through human accomplishments. That's way number one to, to receive God's blessing, and it doesn't work. And then you come into chapter 16 of Genesis. You can turn over to, I'm sorry, to uh, 17 of Genesis. And here in chapter 17, God gives Abram the covenant of circumcision. He's 99 years old at this point. God appears and he reaffirms his covenant with Abram. And he says, now he calls him Abraham. And then he says in verse 15, God said to Abram, Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of people, Peoples shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. He says this, this plan that God has just seems so absurd and ridiculous. And he, he says to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham, listen to what he says, said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, here's the plan that I came up with. And, and your plan Sounds really nice and all, but it just seems so absurd. Perhaps, may I recommend to you this plan? And God, God says, nope, no, that's not the plan. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Ishmael, yeah, good things are going to happen to him, verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. The son of the slave woman is the result of Abraham seeking his own means to receive the blessing that God has promised. And God says, no, I'm going to do something more spectacular, something more miraculous. I am going to create life in a way that is so stupendous that only I can receive the credit and the glory. And you come into Genesis 19, you have the story of Lot. Genesis 20, the story of Abimelech. And then we come to chapter 21. Verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and, and the Lord, Yahweh, did to Sarah as he had promised. He does what only he can do. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Verse 7, or verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's miraculous, something only God could have done. And we'll look more at this second way next week. But here's the, the point of the story in verse 24. Paul of, of Galatians 6, or Galatians 4, you can turn back to Galatians 4. And Paul says, says this in verse 24. Now, now this, these, these two women, and the two different ways that they represent of receiving God's blessing, one through human effort, through human flesh, that's Ishmael, Hagar, they're enslaved. 
Way number two is through promise. He says in verse 24, now, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now what does that phrase interpreted allegorically mean? It's, it's hard to know exactly how to translate that, that word allegorically. The NIV uses the word figuratively, which isn't a, a bad word to use there. Sometimes in church history, uh, people would interpret in a very allegorical way, and, and, and it, was, it led to all sorts of, of crazy interpretations. It basically, it was the idea that there's a hidden meaning in the text, and it, it's, here's the author's intent, and here's what a, the historical story, but, but rabbis, and then later people in the Middle Ages would say, no, we think there's like a, a deeper hidden meaning that the author didn't know about, and so rabbis, for example, would say, okay, every Every Hebrew letter corresponds to some number, and so we're going to use these numbers and add up the names, and the, they're going to mean different things. And uh, in the Middle Ages, people would come to the story of Abraham, and they say, you know what, I think that Abraham traveling from Ur to the Promised Land is like an allegory, allegory of a, a philosopher traveling from the realm of philosophy into the, the realm of biblical uh, spiritual truth. And it's just, it just got to some crazy meanings, and that's, that's not what Paul is describing here. He's not saying uh, that we take Scripture and we find the, the hidden meaning that the author didn't even know was there. That, that's not what we're talking about. In fact, that, that happens today. Whenever I was in college, I went to a prophecy con- uh, conference at the, the church that my parents attended, and there was a speaker who got up, and he started talking about all the, these, these Bible codes. He says, you know, if you read the Old Testament and you count like every third letter. It'll spell out these, these crazy things that predict the future and, and all sorts of things. And I'm, you know, I'm a college student listening to that going, well, that, that's interesting. That, that sounds pretty amazing. And I, I walk out of the conference and I, I encounter the associate pastor and a couple of the elders from the church and their heads have exploded, you know, not literally and not allegorically, but figuratively. They, they're, like, they're just, well, I can't believe this guy just said these crazy things, you know. So we're not talking about those types of interpretation, right? We're not talking about some sort of, he's not saying, well, the, the story of, of Hagar is actually a, some, uh, this hidden meaning that, that Moses didn't know about. No, he's saying, okay, look, just look what happened, and this is an illustration of, of what's, what's, what's true about the law. Listen what he says. He says, these women are two covenants. They're two covenants. That's the Mosaic, the old covenant, and the, the new covenant. That's, that's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Listen, listen to what he says. Next part of uh, verse 24. And uh, here, here we encounter the first way, okay? This, the first way is through human effort. Listen, listen to what he says. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, now think about what he's saying here. Let's, let's, let's look at this closely. When he says, one is from Mount Sinai, what does he mean? He says, okay, this is talking about the first covenant, the old covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant. It says this, this first one, this first woman is from Mount Sinai, the old covenant, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. And Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So he's saying, Hagar equals Mount Sinai, equals the Old Covenant. Now, why does Hagar equal Mount Sinai? Well, Mount Sinai is where the 
The law was given to Moses, and Mount Sinai is where Hagar and her descendants settled. And so all of these things kind of go together. There's, there's Hagar, she represents this first covenant, the Mosaic covenant that's on Mount Sinai. And it says that she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. That is, those who are saying, hey, you want to become part of the people of God, you want to receive Abraham's promise, you need to become more Jewish, you need to get closely connected to Jerusalem. In the Jewish mind, the closer you are to Jerusalem, the more Jewish you are. Okay? Is this making sense? There's a lot here. He's saying, two women represent two ways of getting to God. One is through works, one is through faith. This first way works, human effort. We see her illustrated by Hagar. Hagar represents the old covenant. She represents this covenant given at Mount Sinai. She represents this Jewish way of trying to approach God that these Judaizers are trying to get you to do. And it says that she, she is in slavery. The child that was produced through human works, through human effort, led to slavery. Both the child and his mother continued in, in, in enslavement. And here's Paul's question as we think about this this first way this morning. Paul's question is, look, why would you ever pursue a means of trying to get God's blessing that that leads to slavery? Why would you ever pursue a method of, 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 of achieving God's blessing that leads not to freedom but to slavery? Why seek to be enslaved? Why try to be connected with Hagar instead of with Isaac and with Sarah? That's a great question. It's a question that you and I would do well to ask ourselves as well. Why would we seek slavery? And you say, well, Daniel, um, you know, I would never go down a works road. I, I know the gospel. I know that a person is saved by grace through faith, apart from works. I, I know that. I know that I'm saved by Jesus Christ, not by my own works. And so, Daniel, how could you ever think that I would go down a works road? Why would you ever think that I would pursue God's blessing through my works? Well, I, I think that's a, a danger because it was a danger for the Galatians. And the Galatians at some point had understood, okay, I'm saved by God's grace through faith in his son Jesus Christ, not by my works, and yet they'd come to a point as Christians in which they were tempted to live by works. You say, well, Daniel, how would, how would that happen to me? Let me describe four kind of phases or kind of a, a four-step progression into works-based living. Number one, it, it begins with unbelief and forgetfulness. It begins with unbelief and forgetfulness. Maybe I, I think about what God has said about himself and I, I, just, I just reject it, I don't believe it anymore. Or maybe I, I forget about what he said about himself being my treasure. And so instead of seeing him as my treasure, I begin to think that there are other things in life that are just as important for me to seek as that treasure. So the, the friendships, the, the accolades at work, the, 
the, the ease of life for my children, you know, that can be something that I substitute for God. In fact, I was thinking about this, this last week. Sometimes our children go through difficult circumstances, and instead of saying, God, thank you for these difficult circumstances that my children are going through that are showing them that you are their treasure and these other things are not, I say, God, please take this away so they can have this treasure and, and you as well, right? So the, the first step of a progression into a works-based Christian life is, is unbelief or forgetfulness. I don't believe that God is my great treasure. I forget that he's my great treasure. Maybe there's a lack of knowledge that, that, that keeps me from understanding who he is and how he works. Unbelief may have sometimes its, its foundation, a lack of, of biblical knowledge, but I forget that it's only by by, by grace that I can receive God. God is the treasure, and it's only by grace that I can receive. I can't work, I can't earn it. So I forget, I forget or I don't believe that God is the treasure. And then the second step is discontentment, right? So I forget that God is my treasure. I don't believe that, or I forget it. And then I look at where I am, and I become discontent. And this happens time and time again through the Old Testament. We see Sarah and Abraham not content with where God has them right now. The Israelites become discontent. The Galatians are discontent. You and I are discontent. God says, look, this is where you are. I'm placing you right here. And remember, I'm your treasure. In the midst of of hard times, in the midst of a difficult marriage, in the midst of a difficult time with friends, in the midst of a difficult time at work, I'm your treasure. In the midst of a difficult time with, with ministry and work, I'm your treasure. And we, we get in this situation and we don't believe that God is our treasure. We forget that he's our treasure. And so what happens? We're discontent. I'm not happy with where I am because I've forgotten who my treasure is. And I need to get out of this. I need to, I need to get the blessing as I define the blessing. So I'm, 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 I don't believe. I'm discontent. This can't be the blessing that God has planned for me. It's, it's not wrong to want good things, of course, but what becomes wrong is when I, I fail to be content and worship in the place that God has me. So I, I don't believe, I become discontent, and then what happens? I begin to rely on my works. I say this place that I'm at is not a good place to be, and now I'm in a very bad situation. I'm not believing God. I'm discontent. I've forgotten what the blessing is. And I begin to try and obtain God's blessing as I define it through my own efforts. I do it as a parent. If I just do these, these three things, and I'll find joy as my kids begin to behave the way that I want them to behave. And instead of saying, God, I am content where I am as a parent as I rely on you and not this situation, as I, as I fail to do that, I fail to receive and pursue the true joy. I have these friends, and and this friend situation is not going where it is, and so if I do these things, maybe they'll turn around. They they don't, and I become pursuing God's blessing through works. We, We do it with good things. Pastors do this. John Piper, again, talking about this this story, says, you know, this this he talks about it in kind of his own thinking as a pastor. He says, there's this desire to build a successful church with multiplied Ishmaels, right? You begin to turn to, okay, what can I do to attract people without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit? Can I, can I begin to, to do attractive things that will bring people in that will allow me to, to build a church? And he says, you can do it. You can accomplish things through your flesh, but you will have attracted Ishmaelites, not Isaacs, children of the flesh, not children of God. We all are tempted to do this. So, 
I don't believe God. I forget God as my treasure. I'm discontent with where he has me. And then I begin to pursue God's blessing as I've redefined it through my own works. I think I can obtain this joy if I just do some more things. Now, we're not talking about God's grace causing us to pursue sanctification. Again, that's next week. But we're saying, okay, I've, I have this thing that I've defined as my joy. It's really become an idol. And I'm going to do what I have to do to get this. And perhaps if I just do a little bit more, if I just pray in a different way, or if I just get involved in this ministry, or if I just do this in my family, or if I just do this with my, my, my schoolwork, whatever it is, I just do these things that I can find the joy that's been so elusive. The fourth stage, after I've failed to believe, after I've become discontent, and I've been pursuing works, that the fourth step here is enslavement, right? I become enslaved. I'm now through my own human works and efforts trying to, to achieve this thing and I'm not receiving the joy and I've, I've put myself back into bondage to the things that God has freed me from. God has freed me from works of the flesh and now in my flesh as I try to pursue God's blessing, I've enslaved myself all over again. That's what Paul is saying to these guys. He's saying, guys, don't, don't you get it? You're trying this, this works-based method and, and you're you're appealing to the law, but the law tells you works don't work. They're not effective. I fail to believe. I forget who God is. I'm discontent with where, I'm in, where I am. I begin to work to try to receive joy, and I'm enslaved. I've arrived at a point where I cannot experience joy because I've forgotten what the treasure is. Freedom means the freedom to experience joy in God, but now I'm in bondage to my own works. I'm in bondage. Bob Dylan was right in at least one way, right? Freedom doesn't mean autonomy. It doesn't mean I have no one I serve. It means I've now been, by God's grace, liberated from those things that would not bring me joy. God has redeemed me. He's given me the opportunity, the ability, the desire, and pursue that which is my greatest joy, both now and for eternity. God himself is our treasure. And, and imagine the immensity of, of who God is and just the absurdity of thinking, perhaps I can achieve a relationship with, with this God of the universe on the on the basis of my own efforts, it's utter folly and foolishness. How can I receive God? How can I be in a relationship with God, not through offering him trinkets or little tiny treasures, but only by his grace? Only by receiving through faith the gift that he freely bestows upon those whom he enables to believe. I don't receive more of God through my works, I receive more of God as he continues to give himself to me in his grace. And as I pursue works, I'm actually, instead of running toward him, running further away as I pursue works on my own flesh. There's an important distinction there that we'll look at next week. Pursuing joy through human effort will not lead to freedom, but to slavery. Freedom is only found in Christ, and we'll explore that more 
next week as we continue looking at this amazing passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for how you, in your grace, have enabled us to experience freedom. We pray that we would do so. We pray that we would turn from works. We would turn from our own human efforts. We would reject false gods and pursue you by faith. We pray that you would make the gospel very real to us this morning. We pray that we would believe this message, that you are sufficient for all things. Help us to cling to that truth in the midst of hard circumstances. We pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.